Welcome to another episode of the Following Films Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Maynard. Today we have a special treat for all the documentary, action, bodybuilding, political enthusiasts out there. Because in this episode, we delve into the captivating world of cinematography and explore the acclaimed Netflix documentary, Arnold. Joining us today is the incredibly talented cinematographer, Logan Schneider who played a pivotal role in bringing the life of the legendary Arnold Schwarzenegger to the screen, or the small screen, on Netflix. Logan will be sharing his insights, experiences, and behind-the-scenes stories that went into the making of this remarkable three-part film. Arnold is an inspiring documentary that offers an intimate and in-depth look at the extraordinary life and career of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Through a masterful blend of archival footage, interviews, and cinematic storytelling, the documentary unravels the various facets of Arnold's journey, from his humble beginnings in Austria, to his rise as an iconic bodybuilder, to Hollywood superstar, and eventual political figure. But before we dive into our conversation with Logan, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Bookman's. Bookman's is your go-to independent bookstore, where you can find an extensive selection of books, movies, music, and so much more. They truly believe in the power of storytelling and the magic of the cinematic arts. So if you're looking to expand your film collection and dive into the world of Arnold Schwarzenegger just a little bit further, be sure to visit Bookman's. Have you followed the Following Films podcast on Spotify yet? If you have, well, thank you. If you haven't, head on over to Spotify, search for Following Films, and give us a follow. It really does help the show. Oh, and we have a contest going on right now. The kind folks over at Universal have given me two codes for the new film Renfield, digital codes, so you can own the movie. If you would like to get one of these digital codes, go over to Twitter and you can find uh, you can find Following Films by searching for Following Films. You can see our pinned tweet. Go ahead and retweet that and follow Following Films on Spotify. Send me a screenshot through either my email address, which is chris at followingfilms.com, or you can DM me on Twitter, and that's all it takes to enter the contest, and winner will be given out at the end of the day on Tuesday. Now, without further ado, let's talk about Arnold. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Hey, Logan. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Oh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I appreciate it. I, no I had problem. three o'clock on my schedule. I'm so sorry. I'm running a few minutes behind. That's that's totally fine. Uh, unacceptable. I'm bad, bad form on my behalf. So I apologize. It's okay. Well, it's like uh, on set. I'm like that whole 30 minutes early instead of 30 seconds late. I'm like life or death. Never been late to to a shoot day. I try. But in my normal life, I'm like, yeah, I'll probably make it. <laughs> Fair different, different deal. So this is a pretty exciting project. I don't know how old you are, but I'm 46. So mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger is one of those guys that I don't remember a time without him. This is something where he's pretty much etched into my DNA as this iconic figure where he does. It's like, doesn't seem real people that are my age that mm-hmm. I became aware of um, when I was in I don't know high school, college, it's when I meet them, it doesn't, it feels normal, like regular people. He doesn't seem like a person to me. It seems like that's a concept more than a human. What was it like meeting this guy and sitting in the same room? Um, I had a similar, one of the reasons this was 
really fun and exciting was it's, you know, it's Arnold. It's like, I grew up T2, True Lies, Predator is still one of the best action movies ever. Um, I can just rant about that forever. Um, and then there's all this other, the bodybuilding phase, the governor phase, the kind of elder statesman thing he's doing now. And it's, um, so there's a lot there to unpack and a lot there to learn because, you know, I knew the pieces I knew, but I didn't kind of have that much depth of understanding. Um, and he's like, he's also like a good dad and, and he's funny and he, um, you know, he has his friends and he, he picks up after his donkey and miniature horse and his dogs. And he does, he cleans up their stalls and, um, works rides his bike into venice and works at a gold beach every day gold uh, gym every day so it's um he's kind of this like larger than life figure but also a dude that was the part i was deeply surprised by just how so sorry my dogs are of course going nuts at this exact moment it's a uh, thing uh, so, that, uh that just how normal he seems by the end of this by the end of this three-hour mm -hmm. process that yeah you see the bodybuilder phase but you also see his childhood in a way that i personally had never seen that kind of depth before and i was actually genuinely surprised by a lot of these elements and so by the time you get through this whole thing you see him really as a three-dimensional person in a way that i've probably watched a hundred interviews with this guy but i feel like i just got to know him mm -hmm. over this weekend when i watched the film the the thing i think that was most kind of enlightening to me as I learned his story was the, the, you know, born in 1947, post-war Austria, like he was a child of a broken country where his, his, there was a word for it, which I don't recall, but uh, it's a little like three day wander where the, one of the parents would go off and look for food, you know, yeah. like try to find food to bring home to the family. His dad was, you know, had been buried for three days in Stalingrad. Um, there's a, just a, a lot of pain that he grew out of, but everyone in the area was poor. It wasn't just him. That was just their life. It was kind of this, all that mixed with the magic of there's the castle across the street and there's these amazing forests in this kind of bucolic, beautiful valley. And um, so there's, there's a lot of, um dichotomies in his past that come back but but the motivation to want to be in america was just something that really i think came from inside and was kind of unique that way yeah I, I, absolutely because this is at the end of the day it's an, a, what feels like a very american story to me the at least totally. the version of the american story that we tell ourselves is a possibility that we rarely see actually <laughs> Um, happened, but he lived that. He embodies that sort of American dream. He's one of the most earnest, like Americans, you know, a, and as a politician too, definitely one of the most earnest. Of like, yeah. I wish, you know, whichever side of your politics on are on, he's he was doing it for the right reason because he cared and he wanted the country to be better and he wanted to take care of the people that had brought him in um the the united states and you know he he led by example that way and some things he did really well and some things he didn't but the 
it was always from a place of of what what is the right thing for the country um and he just he just didn't play the games that everyone else was playing so uh, I, had, I had a lot of respect for him and we would we'd be shooting in his house and like david cameron would stop by we're like why is the prime minister here <laughs> or you know stuff like that or uh, you know uh danny devito or yeah. something like that and it's this kind of range of humanity that he interacts with it's it's really unique and um keeps it from being like a oh this is the celebrity story where he had his big break and then he did these movies and then now he wants a biofilm to tell everyone how awesome his movies are well the next he, generation it, there's especially in the political piece of it and throughout but he's self-effacing in ways yeah. that I wasn't expecting. You rarely see, especially when people are talking about politics, when he talks about when there were things that he didn't understand, concepts, that policies that he just wasn't familiar with. He had these go-to mm-hmm. lines that he would just kind of deflect with. And yeah. we never, it, while we know they all do that, we never see somebody actually own that in the way he does. And it's something that's so, um, I, I don't know, it just makes you like the guy so much. I always think if someone's, I'll take uh you know, when I deal with cameras, there's camera companies where I have a relationship where I'll be like, Hey, I'm having this problem. And they'll be straight with me. Like, yeah, that's something we're working on. This is what you can do for now. Or just reboot the camera. There's nothing we can do yet, but we're working on it. Or you get the ones that are like, Oh man, well, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Or, uh, you know, go through eight levels of, customer service before you talk to someone and you still don't get an answer. And it's like, I'll, I'll always take the one that's going to give me, this is the problem. We're trying to fix it. And what do you think? Um, and I feel like that was more of his approach as a, as a governor, um, you know, bringing in Susan Kennedy, a, a Democrat as his chief of staff, a democratic environmentalist, like who are the smart people in these fields? Yeah. Let's not make a big thing about, you know, which flag you're waving. Like, let's just try to move forward. Oh, Um, and I think there's a lot of lessons in that for other people, too. Oh, for sure. And I wanted to get into the look of this film, but just kind of the last thing to touch on with that, Mm -hmm. the political side of this, which is I think that he hasn't been remembered the way that he should be as a politician right now. Because, yeah, the divide between right and left has never been greater. But Schwarzenegger was one of the political figures in this country that really pushed environmentalism to the center stage and made a lot of efforts and moves that would just, even the most radical people wouldn't probably push forward at this time. And I, I tend to be incredibly left in my beliefs, um, but it's something that needs to be contextualized that how important he was in starting that movement. There's a lot to be said of the not being able to run for a higher office. Um, you know, it's, it's, if, if he could run for president, he probably would have, I'm guessing. And, um, it's really, you know, to the benefit of California that he, he wasn't having to think in a two or three year time frame. Yeah. He's like, I can, I can do a million solar roof project. Um, that's going to take 10 or 12 years to happen. And I'm not going to gain from that politically, but California will, and my legacy will eventually benefit from that. So we did these infrastructure projects. Um, 
a few of the political kind of plumbing projects he did were really helpful, like the redistricting that helped in the primary system helped California be able to um, have cleaner elections in terms of uh, not just having people stuck in office for a thousand years and not be able to get them out if they're not doing a good job. Uh, you know, I, I, I certainly don't agree with everything he did, but I, I, in terms of the reasons, I, I think they were for the right reasons. Um, and you see him, uh, he's very clear that, you know, in the, as you saw in the doc, he, he doesn't think he's a self-made man. Yeah. He doesn't, it's not about like, look at me, look what I did on my own. It's, it's all because America gave him these opportunities. Where else, where else could you, I mean, he comes greatest bodybuilder in the world, moves to the U S um, wins all these things, becomes a millionaire in real estate before he's a, yeah, really going as an actor. He'd only done a few roles, then becomes the biggest actor in the world. Then become gets into politics after marrying a Kennedy. After you know our royalty, like one after another. Um, where else? You know, it, it's just right, one of those stories. Yeah, it it and it's something you. And he's in predator. And he and he's in predator, which is I, okay. So on predators too good. Well, Okay, so do you go for John McTiernan? Do you go for Die Hard or do you go for Predator as the... Okay, three years, three movies in like I... four years. Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for October. It, that's the... They're the, like the three archetypal movies for three different types of action. Um, best Christmas movies, definitely Die Hard. In terms of action <laughs> movie, the depth of characters... God, I don't know. They're... Like each of the, for a simple action movie with like a special forces team, mm -hmm. every one of those characters has so much depth and is so fleshed out. Every camera movement that Don McAlpine did made, was motivated by what was happening. I don't know. It, it's, it's so much better than it should be. It's almost comical. Oh, Same with Die Hard. 100% on Predator agreed. And yes, Die Hard should not be as good as it is. But I, at the beginning of COVID, one of the few advantages of this happening was uh, of not being able to go to theaters anymore is my wife bought me a projector to so I could just start shooting movies on the side of our house outside so that I could have that yeah. big screen experience like that. And one of the first things I watched was Predator. And mm -hmm. I just seeing it that way and being immersed in it because I hadn't seen it that way since eighth grade yeah. or something like that. And I forgot just how goddamn tense that thing is that it absolutely works. And you're right. It is yeah. a goofy ass movie. It should not work that well, but it, it does. It, it absolutely does. Like all those characters, like the actors were, you know, Jesse Ventura and then uh, Carl Two. Weathers is so good. Um, yeah. Uh, on and on and on. Everyone, Shane Black, everyone Shane Black, in there. Yeah. Is <laughs> like, young Shane Black. In that one. You know, uh, uh each of them is they're not just like a surface character. Um, die hard, die hard. I've been like, I've studied that. And to me, it's, it's a heist movie with a, with a uh, cop movie thrown on top of it. Yeah. It only is as good because if you added like George Clooney in a suit and Brad Pitt eating and everything, all of a sudden that's like an ocean's 11 movie. Yeah. But they made this great, brilliant heist movie 
and then put a cop on top of it and looked at it from the other direction. So it's, it's, it's almost backwards in the reason it's so good. And, and then, yeah. And Alan Rickman to put those <laughs> two against each other too performances where they really are eating up this chewing up the scenery in every moment they're in Bruce mm -hmm. Willis and Alan Rickman, but it somehow works. It somehow feels incredibly grounded. It I mean, I could recite the whole thing right now, but that would be, you'd lose subscribers. <laughs> I'm <just gonna> okay. <laughs> so back to Arnold and something that yeah. with the, with cinematography, the way that it's changed, um, I feel like these movements that happen every couple of years, um, you know, there were in the seventies into the eighties, there was the steady cam, that innovation. And then mm -hmm. you had digital when that started taking over. And now it seems like drone is that next step in it, where it's just a new tool set that you have to learn. Uh, is this something where you have worked at, do you hire a drone operator or how do you design moments when you require drone photography? Um, drones are a, double-edged sword in that they can do amazing things if you have an amazing pilot. Um, yeah. The, the thing that I talk to drone ops about and pilots is I, I prefer the feel of a helicopter because a helicopter has momentum in a mm -hmm. way that you can feel the weight as it pulls up and wraps around. The speed of it is more... Um, and it feels to me more like the same thing you would do with a crane or a dolly. It, it doesn't come in and, or like do a, like a diagonal move. It swoops. Yeah. You know, you, that Spielberg push in, you're not doing a perfect angle. You're, you're coming in and lowering at the same time and, and kind of get these like logarithmic curves. Um, and to me, that's, that's what I'm trying to get, like get off that like perfect, uh axes move that drones do and get try to feel like don't let me know it's not a helicopter when i look at the footage i know it's not a helicopter but i want you to make me forget it well it's so much that's ingrained in our cinematic vocabulary totally. a helicopter shot that it doesn't call attention to itself we just see that as it's an establishing shot it's whatever that is yeah. and but when you pull outside of that and very few times when you do these unnatural moves with maybe the exception of ambulance, which had just drone work that doesn't make any sense in it. Um, it, it those yeah. moves would never. They're happen. stabilizing that FPV thing where it goes like this and like <laughs> they're, they're, they're figuring it out, but it, that's hard to, hard to deal with right now. Yeah. And so then we'll, it's just emulating a familiar look in that sense. So if you have the resources to go with a helicopter, you just still, still choose that, or is it just something that you say, okay, we just have to make the drone um, this way. Rarely do you get a helicopter yeah, these days. Uh, but to me, it's like my influences are movies. I, when I talk about references, I mostly talk about movies and, sure. you know, when I think of a helicopter, I think of Tony Scott, I don't think of like, a drone buzzing over my garden. So it's, it's like, look at spy game. Look at, you know, everything that it's got so much energy in the way that, and just weight to it. And yeah. I think a lot of camera movement loot doesn't think in terms of like, like the, the mass of the camera. Even if it's a tiny camera, it should have mass and feel like it's intentional um, if that's what you're doing. And 
helicopter is the epitome of that. And, and you've got, you know, however many thousands of pounds flying through the air at 150 miles an hour, that has mass. A heavy dolly with wheels has mass. Yeah. And there's lots of ways to do it. But if that's where your baseline is, you can carry that into other tools. Um, you just have to stay on top of it and think about it. And so when I think of drones, I go back to my references, my inspirations, which are like, I don't want it to feel like a two-foot version of the Hunter Killers from Terminator. I want it to be big. Yeah, no, that that, that makes perfect sense. But and it's then... scary that they look like the Hunter Killers from Terminator, because <laughs> that's not a good sign. <laughs> well, with everything else that's going on right now with AI technology, I mean, how many more yeah. fucking warning signs do we need at this point? <laughs> I'll be available for uh, Overlord um, <laughs> servicing whenever... The robots need it. Fine. Just accept the new boss at this point. It's fine. I'm here to support you guys. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so then, it's going to be great. <laughs> so how do you, because the, the reason I thought of the drone photography was just these, the beautiful scenery that you're shooting in this just right mm-hmm. away and the way you're establishing the land that he comes from and that it's something that you see it. And it's so incredible that it's like, this is somewhere that I couldn't imagine trying to run away from, but then you contextualize it in a way that makes that make sense. But it's so beautiful in that way that it's a story that really matters. And you have a very different look when you're doing the one-on-ones, when you're doing Mm -hmm. the the actual interview shots. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to designing the... uh, Yeah. Um, And and before we go into the interview part, in terms of drones, like... Leslie, the director, would come up with a list of like the 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 shots she wanted and the establishing pieces, and then a basic idea. If the drone people are good, then they can expand and get some other shots, and that's great. Um, my role in there is usually to kind of help them shoot for that kind of heavier cinematic feeling to don't just think of like, it's not a real estate video, like think longer lens, parallax and, yeah. and energy. Um, and, and don't shoot it till it's good is an important factor that gets lost in second units um, often. <laughs> so, um, but, but we were lucky. We mostly had uh, good pilots and operators. We had, one unnamed one that was an issue and we were able to pull out the piece we needed and that's fine. Um, and that's part of it is, is like creating something that's possible and, and then working at the level of whoever you have, um, which is someone recently on a commercial described shooting on location with new crews is like an away game in baseball. Like, you got a few things against you. Sometimes the crowd's against you, but um, yeah. I mean, that's actually a really good way of putting that. Do you have a group of people that you try to bring with you that are sort of your go-to uh, people? Um, I do. Uh, for drones, I don't. Uh, oh, outside of your electrical uh, or whoever else. No, I, I've got a key grip that he wasn't on this. He was in Atlanta on something, but um Got a key grip that I've worked with for years since we were, I was a camera assistant. He was a, a hammer um, and other, other grips I've worked with for years. Um, a gaffer I've done multiple TV shows with uh, Ryan French and Rudy 
Cabarubius is that grip. Um, and we've done shows together, we've done commercials together, docs, and Ryan started this and then he was on another thing. Um, so it's, and camera assistants uh, and operators have got a lot of good friends that I've worked with for years. And some were new on this, some were old. And um, it's when it's the crew that you love and they're good friends, like you're just starting ahead. Like, I don't have to babysit. I can tell them I want a big light through the window. I don't have to, like, call units and exact placement. Um, I can do that, but it's it's just that's more of my brain somewhere else instead of talking with the director. What are we doing? What's the goal? Watching the image as we develop it. Um, the DIT that helped uh, build these LUTs, um, Eli Berg, he's, he's fantastic, and I've you know, I've known him since he was a second AC and I was a first and uh, he's, he really helped us kind of take our reference, um, especially for the, for the memories that we shot in Austria. We did looks based on movies of the time, like red balloon and uh, yeah. And uh, sound of music. Sure. And so um it uh it was really um great to have him he understands what that means and he understands what i like and i don't have to like translate two languages to get before we get to him on this game of telephone it's like hey eli can you do that thing we did but make it more like this oh yeah great let's move on with our day and focus on the next thing there's too many there's so many pieces floating around that even if you can do them all, if you're doing them all, there's something you're not doing. So having a, a crew that I love and, and plus you got to hang out with them for 12 or 14 hours a day. And they're like a family and I love them all. And I miss them when I'm, you know, on a strike vacation. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's, it's something yeah. where the, the, the one thing that when you have in just a huge budget on the film. The thing that you're really buying more than anything else is time. And so efficiency mm -hmm. is so important on every film set. And if you can yeah. have efficiency in the way that you communicate your language or shorthand, then that just buys you all this time to do all the things that matter. So that's got to be, I totally get why people end up with sort of their, their company that they work with, you know, both in front of and behind the camera. Well, it's also like, if you're, once you find someone good, they're good. Yeah. You know, uh, John Parson, Wayne Goring, two of the ACs that were on this all the time. They're just, they're great ACs. Like, I don't have to worry about the camera. I don't have to worry about the focus during the, the interview. I don't have to, it's fine. I can, I go say hi, shoot the shit while they start to build the camera, and then I go do my job. And, um, and same with a really good gaffer. And it just, it's off my plate. And um, uh, it's much more enjoyable to work that way. And then they're creative people too. So they'll suggest something and, and make it better and take it a step further than I either have time for or have thought of. And, um, you know, Rudy, he, he was doing a, a big Marvel show in Atlanta. And then he was doing, you know, he's done all these, giant projects and so he brings that eye because he's one of these key grips that's watching the monitor and paying attention and we don't agree and he might get 
mad at me for going a different way, but I don't mind that because I don't think agreeing is the goal. I think, I think finding the best idea moving forward is the goal. And I appreciate anyone who has the conviction to fight for what they care about, even if we all get a little cranky now and then um, when, when our, we don't win our little battle, you know, I'm not immune to that at all. Um, but after that, we move on and hopefully the best idea is won. But, you know, it's that pressure makes diamonds thing of like, let's all, we're creative people, let's push for what's the best and hopefully the best thing wins. It's not a democracy. Someone's going to make a decision in the end, but you know, with respect and um, mutual support, you can do really cool things that you just can't do on your own. And you can't do without trusting the person next to you. Absolutely. And I think that it's a mark of a good leader or the type of leader that I want to follow that will give me the space to disagree with them. And it's not punitive, that it is something that we can, we can not see eye to eye, but I can feel comfortable coming to you with something. And as you know, or when someone's coming to me with something that if I'm in the leadership role, they come to me and they disagree with what I'm saying. I've always thanked them for that moment of saying like, Hey, I'm so glad you were able to actually, we're not going to do that, but thank you for doing, for telling me, because that actually means a lot to me that you're comfortable enough to disagree with me in this moment. It's not, it's nothing personal. These are the reasons we're having instruction, but thank you. I think the industry in the 90s and to the 2000s was at a really toxic place where it was about control and power in a, in a really negative way. And sometimes I think now the, it's the pendulum has swung too far where I never think anyone should be disrespectful personally. Yeah. It should never be personal. It should never be aggressive um, or threatening. But people disagreements. Okay. And there's, it seems like people have this goal of always agreeing all the time between like 30 people and it's just not going to happen. And if you don't hash it out, it, it, you know, it's just like, I've got kids and if you don't deal with something, it's not going to get better on its own. It's (laughs) like you got to address the issue and, and grow with it, both the kid and you or, um, or you're, it's just going to come up worse the next time. Um, so I think, uh, I think mutually respectful uh, conflict is okay and, and important for, to make something um, great. I, I remember a fellow DP saying, you know, it, something was pretty easy. And if it's easy, it's probably mediocre. Um, and I'm like, that sounds right. Yeah. It doesn't mean you don't, doesn't mean simple is bad. That's different, but easy. If it were easy, everyone would do it. And two things. One, um, agree with you 100% on kids, the way that the problems will mm-hmm. come downstream. You got it, got to yeah. make that shit in the bud. But I don't think any great art has been created by homogeny. I, I don't think yeah. that you have consensus leads to things that you'll remember in 20, 30 years from now. That probably leads to things that you forget on your way to the parking lot to me. Um, there was that great Gordon Willis quote where he said, you know, no is re- a really important word because in dailies, everyone remembers yes. No one remembers no, if it works, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's, 
you know, but at the same time, you, the egos are what they are. And it's really important to surround yourself with a group of people that want a better project, better film, better show, better doc, whatever it is, and are not going to let it be about power all the time. And that being said, you know, a lot of times there's a crew and everyone's got an opinion. It's my name on the slate. It's the director's name on the slate. And, you know, we got to make a call. And and uh, hopefully it made one that, that's best for the film. And we tried. We tried. So. Well, absolutely. That's a, that's all you can do. And sometimes the there's the decision that has to be made not because the other idea isn't a wonderful, brilliant idea, but it just can't be executed mm-hmm. in the amount of time that you have with resources you have in that moment, or it's just not right. And it's not something that's there. It's just that it yeah. is what it is back against the wall. Sometimes we have to make mediocre choices and we try to make excellent ones the next day. One of the best lessons I used to visit sets all the time. It's one of the things that got sad when COVID hit and I couldn't just go watch my friends work and hang out with them. It's, I love it. There's free food. It's perfect. Um, <laughs> it was more like this way to, and sometimes I can go operate for a friend just to hang out and yeah. do a similar thing, but then you have to be doing something. So, um, but it's a nice relief to just be in that environment without pressure. And, uh, I, one of the guys I watched was Chris Manley who went on to do, um, uh, Mad Men, and he probably doesn't remember this, but I visited, there was like a pilot he shot that was like a narrative version of Amazing Race. Mm-hmm. And I went and one of the questions I would ask was like, if you had all the time in the world, what would you do here? There's like a guy in midday sun in the parking lot. And he's like, you know, one of the things that's really important to know is like, when a lot of work isn't going to do and time is not going to help much, just to let it go and use those resources to where, when it can really have a bigger impact. And, um, you know, and then he went on his day, not realizing he taught me a super important lesson, um, but it was, it was great. And, you know, there's been many lessons like that over the years, but that kind of one of like, let the parking lot shot go move on and, you know, pick your heels to die on very carefully because, you might die on one. <laughs> well, I, yeah. and I think that's advice that you can actually apply to any facet of your life. Um, you know, as 14 years of marriage now, the mm-hmm. knowing what the important fights are to have, that's a yeah. hard lesson to learn. But once you get your head around that, and by the answer is pretty much none of them are that important that pride gets yeah. in the way and all these other things. But, and if you can learn that in your professional life, even if it's not something that's necessarily considered in the arts. I think that letting go and listening and just moving on, it's really important because sometimes it's why are you pushing back? Does it actually matter? Is this truly important to you? Have conviction when it matters, Mm -hmm. but when it's not, let it go, man. Be done with it. Knowing knowing where that line is, when to back off is really delicate thing. And I've been successful sometimes and guilty (laughs) other times. It's, it's, it's a, you know, I, I, as I've gotten older, the and you know, I'm no longer in the transition phase of like I'm moving from PCing to DP. I've been a DP full time for yeah. more than half a decade. It's just used to it. And so now it, it's this interesting thing has happened where there's this dovetail of like 
trying to be a better DP and trying to be a good person and a better person. And I'm trying to learn both of those things at the same time. And sometimes I'm more successful in one or the other, but I often find that they, they go together really well. Like when I'm, I'm listening, I'm out of my ego. um, I'm focused on the project and um, really considering those around me. I do great work. And, and sometimes I'll let something fluster me that doesn't really matter and it will have a negative impact. Um, And, you know, occasionally throwing my weight around about something ends up turning out really well. And that's a bad lesson, but it happens. (laughs) But most of the time kind of have becoming more Zen in my age of how I approach things and how I deal with things has made me a much better DP and, and enjoying it a lot more than I ever did. And I always enjoyed it. So it's, uh, yeah, getting old, older. I'm, I turn 40 next week. So it's getting older is, uh, um, underrated. <laughs> it's really nice. Actually. Um, I, ha- I'm, I'm on this side of being, I'm closer to 60 now than I am to 30, which was a realization I had just a couple of weeks ago. And that was a weird one to get my head around. But I look back at these transitions in my life, these different periods, phases of my life, and I wouldn't go back for anything. I I am so much happier today than I have ever been. I mean, I mean, I, there's things that I miss and there's things I wish I could do. Most of them are, like physical, you know, and I'm still pretty active, like trail run, ski and snowboard, do all sorts of fun stuff. But I like waking up after three drinks and feeling like a hero. That's not coming back. You know, (laughs) that's done. Those days are gone. (laughs) So it's, um, you know, but I, I'm, I'm lucky to still be very active and feel good mostly. And, um, but not being afraid of being who I am and not, not being kind of insecure about so many things that come with growing up and kind of being ambitious and wanting to be something is uh, specific. You know, I've always, I've wanted to be a DP for 20 years and um, now, now I'm doing it and I, I appreciate it. And I, I, I just don't think it's, I don't know. It's it's just a more relaxed state. And after having small children, now they're five and nine, but when they were babies, like what's harder than that? I'm like, this is all like a fun, enjoyable experience. No one's screaming at me unless it's a music video. And even then it's just entertaining. It's life's pretty good. Not to keep rambling on, but no, but no, no, no. I'm, I'm sorry for going down. This I think the life on part on all these podcasts, everyone talks about things, but no one talks about like, how do you raise kids? How do you hold together a marriage? How do you, um, how do you find balance? How do you learn to be a better person? Like all these things that I think are the core parts of being a DP long-term that I want to be are are not that the filmmaking itself is not super important. It's just the foundation. If it cracks apart, what's the point? 
No, and I agree with you completely. (laughs) And I'm, these are the types of conversations that I want to have uh, because I deeply believe in my heart of hearts that being a better father, excuse me, (laughs) being a better father has made me get talking with my hands too much. The East coast of me is coming out. Being a better father, being a better husband has made me better at my day job, has made me better at mm-hmm. every facet of my life. It's made me a more calm, more centered, a less reactionary person. Um, it's made me a more thoughtful person. And I see who I was in my 20s and who I was in my teen years. And I'm so happy that I was that goofy little emotional, the world is ending with every single <laughs> fight that I was going to have person. Yeah. But that's a stranger to me now. And I and I have no interest in being that person again because I just I have these kids that are counting on me. And it's it's really strange how you're absolutely right. When you start focusing on all these other things, it's other things start coming along with it. I've had several friends that have gone through AA and they were it's one of those things when you start focusing on this one part of your life that you know, I had a friend that was had to, you know, do that for drinking, but then they were focused on that. Then cigarettes went away, you know, that kind of just mm-hmm. fell to the wayside and then eating kind of got together, being more active came together. Yeah. Just you focus on one part of your life. And if the goal is to be a better person at the end of the day, the other shit ends up just being a reaction to it. And yeah. then a benefit. <laughs> I, I think the, one of the tough parts at this age is staying ambitious when when you do get comfortable in something, it's very hard to not stay comfortable. And, you know, I do these kind of distance endurance uh, cycling and, and trail running. And part of the reason I like that is that, like, it keeps some pain in my life in a way that I think is constructive. And also the sense that, like, if I keep doing it, no matter how hard it is, eventually you do get there, no matter how long the run or the ride. And kind of finding balance in life and managing it uh, and enjoying it is, is, it's a delicate thing to not be like, oh, I don't need to do that job. Uh, I think I'm going to do this. Uh, um, and that's something that, yeah, I don't know where the right balance is because, you know, I I, I want to make all my kids baseball games, and but I'm a DP, and it is what it is. Today's episode of the Following Films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. I'm joined today by my son Jacob. Jacob, say hello, hello. To people. Oh, there you go. You're already on it. So, Jacob, when you go to Bookman's, what is it that you like to look at? What do you like to get? You like to look at the movies and you like to get the coffee news, the newspaper they have out front. That's great. So last time we went into Bookman's, I picked up a movie. Um, What movie did I get, Jacob? Escape from New York, but that's the name as it hurts of the... uh, As the cover, sorry. Sorry, No, no, you're okay. Would you talk a little bit about what you see on the cover of Escape from New York on this Blu-ray that I got? So based on this cover, you see... Glass shattered, and also the Statue of Liberty's face fell apart. Because in this movie, Escape from New York, is the introduction is a man trying to save the president's daughter, and New York turns 
into a poison in this movie and there's the hero as you can see very strong in fact oh yeah now this is one of my favorite movies i love this movie now you're too young to watch it because you're only six years old but do you think in a couple of years from now when you get a little bit older you'll want to check out escape from new york yes okay what's a movie that you've seen that we picked up at bookman's that you like come here talk so that people can hear you uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Little Shop of Horrors. That's a great movie. So when you're going to Bookman's, you can get movies, DVDs, Blu-rays, 4K, Laserdisc, VHS. You can also get comic books, books, newspapers, magazines, home furnishings. Um, you can get tons of stuff there. Because remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. Hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Yay, that was a good idea. This movie has more depth than I was anticipating it would. And so these are the things I was left thinking with afterwards, that it was something that was for a movie about the guy who made twins. This is by far more profound than I was ever anticipating it would be. And I had a really good time with this. In fact, it's funny because a lot of what you were talking about earlier at the beginning of this conversation um, about the idea of politicians being in power for too long and this kind of thing. And um, that sort of change, it was literally three hours ago, I was interviewing Abel Ferrara and we were having the exact same conversation unprompted. I'm not trying to push it in that direction, but it was literally, and his film is um, Padre Pio. And so it's what you would expect from him. And this is a documentary about Arnold Schwarzenegger. And yet at the end of it, we're having similar conversations because I think there's a need for us to process all these ideas right now. So it's really where we are as a culture, I think more than the art itself. I think COVID. Um, I think COVID affected how because we all suddenly had to take a break. All of us workaholics, um, even though it got busy again. Like I think it changed a lot of people, me included, of being able to enjoy the quiet times. Yeah. Um, and and take a try to find another level of me in in a lot of what we're doing. Um, and I think that's that's lasting as the strike is happening. Right. You know, there, there's the picket lines and there's people people doing good work fighting. Um, and then, you know, when we're not doing that, it's um, we're off. And a lot of people, you know, the strike's really been going on since January because um, nothing started again. A lot right. of people haven't worked this year, uh, which is really tragic. But many have found ways to fill their time with something meaningful and, and expand who they are, you know, for anything from learn a language to scuba diving, you know, getting certified or I've known people doing all sorts of things, road trips, travel, um, home projects, just hanging out with the kids. It's kind of what I'm focused on is, yeah. Um, because, you know, the second part of this year is probably going to be crazy and I might not be home much. It's, it's, um, it's been a real shift and, uh, yeah, I'm glad you found that it had depth in a way I I was surprised. And I think I'm glad that you kind of were impacted by that because that's, that's a lot of 
I think what people need to be talking about. Well, he's a great way to talk about it. Absolutely. Cause it's the comfortable way you, the, because this is a three part documentary mm-hmm. and the middle part is the part of the story that we sort of know mostly it's yeah. the part I was most familiar with, but the bookends of this are the part that we don't know. And that's really where the focus mm-hmm. is. That's the thing. That's where the meat of the story is to me. It's not that the second hour of this is not an enjoyable hour. It's a great hour, but really that first hour and that third hour, um, that's the part where there was some, I, I was calling my wife in from the other room to talk about, you know, some things that I was seeing in an Arnold documentary, which is so great. Yeah. So surprising. And, and that's just my, because of my perception of this icon, really, it had nothing to do with him as a man. It was my limited perception of him, how I, while I had an understanding of this at one point in time, to some degree, I think I had recontextualized him kind of back to just the action star. Now he's like the aging guy who has this, great character actor face now where it's just like, he has mm-hmm. this incredible face that you're like, Oh God, I, I want to see him in more stuff. And I kind of l- lost sight of the bodybuilding lost sight of being born in post-war Austria, lost sight of all of the, um, the family stuff, lost sight of all the political stuff. And it's just, he was just this thing that he's always been there. And it was so good to see this fully rounded human story because we are all, one facet to most people. They see us in one context. Very yeah. few people see us for all we are. You know, maybe our kids and our spouse to some degree, but even then there's parts they don't see. Well, there's not, there's just not that many lives with this many <laughs> chapters, you know, and they're not like chapter, like, oh, I went to college or chapter, oh, I went to, you know, join the military or did, you know, this, this era in my life that had affected me. Um, it's like, I had this amazing, like greatest of all time career. And then I had another amazing greatest of all time career. And then I was the governor of the sixth largest economy in the world. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's ridiculous, but he's, he, you know, one thing about him that, that happened that I really appreciated was he'd sit down for an interview. He wouldn't be looking at his phone. He wouldn't be chatting with his guys. He'd be having the interview. Leslie sitting there and they'd be like eye contact the whole time. And he is focused on what he's doing. And it's not in the movie, but he credits this to like, he spent six weeks studying transcendental meditation in like the seventies, mid seventies. Really? And he learned to like, just focus on one thing at a time, which is something we're all a bit challenged with these days. And, and he would just like, when he's talking to you, he's talking to you. And when he's playing chess, he's playing chess. And when he's doing emails, he's doing emails, but he's not mixing them. And I think so we got, uh, he really kind of, you know, addressed the questions and, and stayed focused and um, didn't really get interviews, which, um, you know, and, and when he's, we follow him around, he's that kind of focus on what he's doing can make it difficult to keep up because he's, as an actor, he'll do as many takes as it needs. But as long as you're doing, for a good reason. Yeah. In his life, he's not a sit around guy. So, you know, we, we had the camera so we could switch it into a verite mode super quickly and, uh, and run. And I had these great things from Mary called master grips, which let you kind of have a remote focus feeling while it's handheld or on easy rig. So we kept going back to the kind of cinema inspiration of like, it shouldn't be going in and out and finding it. It should be like, find a shot, shoot a shot, find a shot, shoot a shot. 
and make them good shots instead of just spray everything. But that's hard when the goo just like, you know, active. You know, we, we filmed them driving this tank around and it was like, switch shots, switch go. Okay, clip in here. And I had my old harness from when I used to shoot like Warren Miller ski films. And, and I was clipping on the outside and I was about to clip the last thing. We'd already done almost all the shots. And he, he starts to back up the tank. And I'm like, sorry, sir, 10 more seconds, one more. Because I will back up slowly. And I'm like, he couldn't stop. He had to be moving. He couldn't wait 10 seconds. I was like, I had two clips. I'm safe, whatever. But, uh, um, you know, that momentum, because there are two things. You want to capture it, but you also want to capture him, but you also want to capture him in his momentum. Of course. Yeah, that's, that's huge. Him. It's just really hard to do in a way that, like, feels big and feels refined. I'm like... There's people that can spray and capture every moment, like Maisel style, and and just sit there for hours and hours. And I have nothing but respect for them, but that's not kind of how I do it. I'm again, I go back to narrative film of yeah. find a shot, find a prime lens usually, find that. We used to like uh, let's see, with him and the donkey, it's probably on a forty or fifty eight for the whole scene, and I just walk to the shot stack them up on a kind of nice lens and just work the scene together. And then Leslie, we've worked together for a really long time. And so she trusts me to build that and then she'll be watching the monitor. And if she sees me miss something, she'll say something or if she has an idea, but I'm able to work quickly because we both kind of know what we like. And then, um, and then she's able to build on top of it, which goes back to like the crew thing of, give them an idea of what we need, let them do their thing and then build forward instead of trying to lift up the whole time. That, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. And with that style that you're implementing, was there anything that you found in those moments that you weren't expecting that you had to run to? That was a, a moment in the film that wasn't planned. Cause it's like the donkey stuff, the way you're talking about that. The way that you shoot it, though, it does feel found. It does feel almost accidental to some degree that you're mm -hmm. like you were not invading, but you definitely feel like a witness more than you do in the talking yeah. head moments. So it's a pretty interesting. And I was wondering if there were those things where it's like, okay, we're moving on from this and I'm going to go do this now. And you just caught something you weren't anticipating. They, well, so the verite was always supposed to be its own feel. Like the interviews are locked down. We lit them like... I would light a movie. Yeah. A bunch of units, mixed colors for contrast and blending and, and lensing, um, all kind of based on that a kind of cinematic feel <laughs> in his office in a big space. The Verite was supposed to be like a 40 or 58 mil, really kind of natural looking, um, usually wide open to yes. isolate. Um, that's where those grips were super helpful. Um, and I spent 10 years pulling focus. So between that experience and those, I was able to kind of do things that are usually need help with. And then the, um, choosing where to be. Sometimes it's, um, uh, sometimes it's what you can do. Sometimes it, I almost always point towards the windows cause it'll look better. Um, almost always 
kind of find a corner where I can get a few pieces or, or have some room for things to happen. Uh, and, and sometimes you're just where you have to be. Um, I, I remember there was a art department person on drunk history that, um, that was, we were scouting and I heard her say like, best thing to do on a scout is just watch where the DP walks and then walk over there. Cause that's usually where the camera is going to end up. And, <laughs> and documentary is really helpful for that. Cause it taught me when you don't have the tools, when you don't have the time, where can you stand and everything still looks good? How do you make the most of this mm. place? And then when you bring that into a narrative environment, those, those rules still work. Looking to the window still works. You can wrap it more cleanly. You can play with the light more um, and work on consistency. And when you need to turn around, you have those tools, but um, it keeps it more natural and it keeps it more um, simple, which again, as I said earlier, simple and easier on two different planets. So it's, um, I think doc and narrative really inform each other that way. Absolutely. And I don't see much of a line between the two as a, somebody who consumes, you know, that you really yeah. are building a story. The way that you get to that story mm-hmm. can be different that you have to ask. There's a more of a external process, I guess, when you're in documentary where you're reaching out for that collaborative moment, the writing p- part of it is more of just building questions and having this thing and seeing, okay, we'll have this set up here. This mm-hmm. is some planning, but not in the way that like a screenplay is traditionally planned out, but the way that you're shooting it. Yeah. They should feel very similar to me that I think that um, using the language of narrative film and documentaries just makes perfect sense to me that that's the difference between um, something that can have a really compelling story, but it feels flat and something that can have, I, I don't know that you can take a, bad story and make it entertaining by the look, but you can definitely pull away from a good story by not giving it the look that it deserves. I think so. um, Good cinematography builds on good storytelling and it's, it's, it's another forward layer. If the base ideas aren't there, then then it's just window dressing. So um, that being said, especially in the documentary space, there's a lot of projects where it's someone with a little camera that's been there for years that just do things that I can never do. And it's amazing. And those are great docs. Uh, It's just not the ones that I like the bigger paintbrushes and I like to mix the two. Um, And, and those are the projects I end up going for. Uh, Docs take so much more work and energy to do, like it's just it's such a hard push on everybody that that if you're not enjoying what you're doing and you're not trying to do something special, it's a really hard way to make less than other types of filmmaking. Well, just just so people get a, I'm not sure that everybody has a good concept of this idea. That how long would you say you were shooting Arnold, and then how long would your this is the longest project I've ever worked on? There you sure. go. <laughs> Um, the previous one on when I was an assistant and operator on waiting for Superman, Leslie was producing and Davis Guggenheim was directing. And then Leslie's second unit directed. Um, 
that was 14 months. I think I was on that from the first shoot I was on to this. This was two years from first I asked for lighting and camera test to uh, final color. It was two years. And unless and, you're shooting Lord of the Rings, that doesn't happen in narrative stories that long. No, no. And it's uh, it's hard when you're recreating uh, an interview setup from that you've done eight times and then you're doing again a year and a half later and you know everything's life changes someone yeah. looks a little different and it's um it's it's you know one day is cloudy one day is sunny one day is more afternoon one day is morning and the sun's coming from a different direction finding a balance of overpowering that for the close-up lighting but also being able to embrace those changes in the background is a it's a really difficult thing to do uh, i've done it a few times on other projects where it's like six months apart matching mm-hmm. an interview and it's um you know we had one where a project where the guy lost 10 pounds and he was thinner and so i don't think anyone else noticed but the director and i are like this, this doesn't look quite the same. <laughs> um, so we 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 do what we can with that, but it it's um, but again, if the if the inspiration is to like, and I'll go back to your original question about the interview, why it's lived the way it is, hmm. and this goes back to just what Arnold's he's he's looked at as this larger than life person right yeah but we wanted to be like intimate with him but he's still arnold and so we didn't want like full terminator hero style and we also didn't want it to look like you know we don't want to forget that that's part of him so it was a balance of like a, a big space with these big windows and and lots of contrast but also we want to be able to see him well and shape his face well, um, catch his expressions. Not too much contrast that um, that it like gets in the way of connecting. And I think that can happen. And where if a DP gets kind of too focused on their part of it and lose track of like this person needs to connect with the audience, that's a huge part of how this will work. And so pull, tone, wrap the light around more, but still leave a really dark side. So there's lots of contrast, but we can really see the emotion and the and uh, give an in for the audience. Um, we wanted it to feel big, but also accessible. And that's, that's there were a lot of contrary words as we were trying to figure out what that meant. And it helped a lot. He came and did a lighting test. And at, well, we did a lighting test at his house. And we learned a few things. We tried, we had an anamorphic zoom on, we had a spherical zoom. Um, Ari had lent us these prototype signature zooms, which were fantastic. And um, they kept lending them to us as we extended until they started shipping. And we finally were able to get them elsewhere. And then the uh, they really kind of added another layer to the look. And then, you know, the lighting, when it, Leslie was really concerned, he was 74. We want to make sure he looks good and and it's flattering, but not like flat. So we tried a few different things and we thought, you know, this really works. But in that lighting test, I realized, especially with LEDs, 
is like it was all warm and the skin was getting ruddy from the lighting. Yeah. And so what we did on the actual shoot was we we had the window over here and a backlight of like 6,500 degrees, like day, day bounce blue. And then one of the top lights, these were billowed like your spectrums. First one was at like 4,600. The next one was at 3,200. There was another one just above the camera, a little eye light that was at like 2,900. And so all these lights wrapped warm and the, the LEDs are all faking the colors. So by mixing the colors, it kind of like filled in the spectrum and you got a more neutral skin tone in this area. And you looked a lot more natural and it ended up being more flattering. Um, but also integrated him into the background, which I think is really important in your view, not to just have that green screen thing where it's like the person in the background. They should connect with it uh, without it being distracting. Well, absolutely. And especially in a, a film like this and in those moments where you're having, you need that to feel intimate, but you don't need it to, it needs to feel warm, but it needs to feel like it's honest at the same time. So yeah, it's these mm -hmm. contradictory things. And I think there's a beautiful moment in this film that I, if you describe it out of context, it could sound like it doesn't have the effect that it actually gives where he's looking through these photo albums of himself, just mm -hmm. this book just tons of pictures of himself and it could come across as something that would be self aggrandizing. I think that you're looking back, look at all my accomplishments yeah. kind of thing. What a badass I am, but you look at it and there's a sense that you get from him in those moments that he's witnessing it the same way we are, that it's like, how the hell did this even happen? That he has this like kind of, yeah. there is a, that he is aware of it from a distance, the same way we are, where that he's able to look in at it and go, that shit's crazy. That is, at least that's how it comes yeah. across to me when I, when I see those moments. And that's just really, really important to this. I think that's a, <laughs> that's true for him. And one thing he's talked about is when he goes back to tall and he goes to the, the little stantish, the like little yeah. table in the house and, and has schnapps that they made. And, you know, it's like, pine needle schnapps that tastes like Robitussin, but somehow <laughs> good. And, um, yeah. And, but like everyone's 75 now yeah. and being a big deal is not the same thing it was. And it's, it's more like, this is what I wanted to do when I went and did this. Some people worked for the telephone company and raised a family and are very happy from that. And some one guy was the mayor of that town and was very happy from that. And, and it's, you know, the, the shiny objects are not necessarily meaningful later unless they're meaningful to you. And, um, and so he's in a phase where, where he can look back at all these things from a place of, um, distance and and um i think he he has a lot of satisfaction from those things but it's uh but you know it's a long full life so so those are long time ago for him and i don't think he spends a lot of time thinking about the past you know he's he's go 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 the tank's backing up the his mantra stay busy so just yes, keep, be useful yeah, that's yeah. it. And my reps, God, reps, it, reps. It, it's 
It sounds like such like almost like something that you would, you know, you would see on a meme on Instagram or something like that. But my Mm -hmm. God, is there to see it come from him though? And it's simple, it's concise, and it's couldn't be more true that, you know, you, if you stay busy, if you stay, but it's that step further of busy with what matters that I think we get lost in sometimes. And that's the aging part of it that we stay busy with the things that are important to us, not being busy with something that you're staying busy with because Hollywood told you, this is what you should be focused on. This is the job that you should want, not the job that you actually want, those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I think there's the reps, reps, reps. <laughs> yeah. Get a, part of it that. where it's like, yeah. don't lose sight of where you're going and what you want to do and what's important. Hmm. But like, if you have to shoot a Tostitos commercial to work, then you shoot a Tostitos commercial and you go to the next job and you go to the next job. Um, because you know, you're, there's craft in what we do and like, it's not all going to be an artistic masterpiece, but each of those jobs, you learn something each of the, especially if you go in with the attention, the intention of learning something and you, you, like I'm doing this, I'm going to pay attention to what happens. And then next time you do another thing and you, it, it only has to be one little thing every time, you know, and pretty soon you have a ton of experience, you know, drunk history was like my, uh, was like grad school because every single day we would do a different, a different show. Like today there's one day it was like a story of a dolphin in a, in a lab and so we put 40 fluorescents up and there was a pool built and, you know, on a crane, it was like anamorphic, very natural fluorescent look. Yeah. The next day we're doing the story behind the musical Chicago that it was based on. And it was like in the twenties and kind of mobby and, and courts I'm like, well, why don't we do this? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Old Hollywood, let's see black and white, spherical, and then what we ended up doing is I got Ryan to, we put uh, just a baby pens, the girls put baby pens all over the top of the sets. And Ryan put tweenies and one Ks all over the top. And then we did the rehearsal. And so they come in and then we focus lights, just like old Hollywood in the green beds, focus it to the action and then put something on the floor for an eye light. And we go geared head, you know, just go heavy and feels like that old film. And it, it was, uh, you know, each of those days was great. The only thing that didn't work, I think, is that we shot two, three, five when, you know, we should have gone with an older aspect ratio, like one Academy five. ratio. Probably. Yeah. That was, that's the only thing that I came out of that. Like, yeah, we didn't quite stay true. We should have, we should have done that right. <laughs> but, my God, um, but it sure helps with sets and lighting to have the two for us. Wouldn't and you know I hadn't thought about that from that perspective, having watched that show. But that you're literally doing three different stories every completed episode of that. Mm-hmm. With you're having a documentary style a talking head piece to each one of those. You're having the recreation piece mm-hmm. to each one of those. And oftentimes those recreations can have multiple points that they're remaking, that they're aping the style of all the president's men in one moment. And then they're going totally. It's just, yeah, my God, what an incredible experience you, you did. You, so you could say I did one drunk history, but in the course of that, you did 10 films. I mean, there was, 
one of their favorite ones was um, <coughs> they did a, a story of Mary Shelley coming up with. I, I remember this one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. So we're like, well, okay, we're going to shoot. Um, we're going to shoot anamorphic kind of desaturated older look, uh, kind of nice soft contrast and like warm, warm tungsten fire feel. Like, what should we do for like inside the story? Cause they're telling a story inside the story. And like, well, I don't know. We start to think, I'm like, the same film stock exists, double X 5222 that was, that they used on, Young Frankenstein. So that was introduced in 1958 and still exists today in very similar chemistry. So we we did two days of digital for that, and then we spent a day shooting black and white negative, and and um, it was so much fun. That's but, so cool. You know, I started out in film, so I, I really appreciate it when I get to do it again because it really <laughs> changes how the set works. But it was it was just a blast because we we um, everything slows down, everyone pays attention, no one's on their phone because everyone's a little afraid, and that's okay. And it was uh, ended up being Evan Rachel Wood as Mary Shelley and Elijah mm-hmm. Wood and Jack McBrayer, and then in the um, Inside the story, it was Seth Rogen as Dr. Frankenstein, and then Will Ferrell played the monster. And there's shots that didn't make it of Will Ferrell that are just about the funniest things I've ever seen. A giant monster, just <laughs> it was amazing. But he, um, uh, you know, it was just like, what is the coolest way to do this? And let's go do it. And, you know, sometimes we also had this great out of if we couldn't figure some how to fit something into our location, we could always go silly with it. Yeah. Like, and one of the best things uh, from before there's this great DP, Blake um, McClure that shot it before me and he did a Titanic one and they did, um, there were like hands thinking a Titanic model and like guys in suits. And it's just, <laughs> We had that out where, you know, sometimes we'd have 12 scenes and the 12th scene was either going to be a $6 million scene or we'd do something funny for $6. And we just do something funny. It was great. Uh, but um, not every show has that out. To, to pull that back, that's that difference between simple, though. That's This is something that is absolutely simple but completely effective and services the yeah. point of the story because if you have the $6 million sinking of the Titanic shot, mm-hmm. it, will it ever look as good as what we saw in the Cameron version of it? Maybe with where digital is gone? Maybe not. Probably not. Why? But, but we've already why? seen the Cameron exactly. version. The, the hands doing yeah. it is by far the better way of doing that. The, having that, like, the, the boys always described it as the like the high school musical version of not the movie, yeah. but an actual yeah, high yeah, school yeah. play version of solving the problem just, just brings it back to being funny. And then you like drop right back into the movie again. Um, but it, it's, it, it ended up making the show better when we had to do those things. Especially those moments where it's, you're having that, you know, community theater um, aspect mm-hmm. of it, but it's, legitimate movie stars 
that are in this particular yeah, local it's, production. It's unbelievable who we ended up with. And it was just, okay. You know, and, and so we, again, this goes back to the, my influences of like, you know, let's, let's try to make this look like there will be blood mixed with <laughs> Jesse James or, you know, uh, no country or this one's, we did one uh, about um, section 504, which was the disability law and kind of the sit-ins yeah. that got that to be yep. effective. And um, we're like, big short was our big, you know, my big influence with that of how to do it. And we had, the, you know, an Alexa with a 24 to 290 on a, a monopod, which is what they did for some of that, where it's not steady, but it's long enough. You could never do that handheld and you're, you're fighting it a bit. And it creates this kind of mixture of documentary and, and a heavy camera, things like that, where we just try to like fully commit to whatever the style was. And then about a third of the stories, we're like coming up with it on the day and just winging it, which is its own skill. There's uh, talk, like you said, it's grad school and being prepared for those moments, like being able Mm -hmm. to improvise on the day in the moment and being able to pivot and move. That's, that's a skill that's just, it's hard earned and it's so, it's so valuable for all. And I had that same great crew there and, um, and some great camera assistants, great steady cam operators, and also a really good relationship with that line producer. Um, Cause I showed pretty quickly that I wasn't gonna ask for anything that I wasn't really using. I wasn't, yeah. I've been an assistant for 10 years. I've seen every toy. I like, I'm not, I'm not, oh, I gotta try this new crane. It's yeah. like, I, <clears throat> I need a techno crane cause we're over water. And I can save you two hours and a bunch of trouble by just moving over the water and we can focus on shooting and not on, you know, water <laughs> and, or, you know, one time we get a BB light because listen, we're going to have to turn around three times um, because of schedule and, and what we're dealing with. Uh, BB light can move over. We can do three directions with two placement. And all of a sudden, like, we're going to save you an hour and a half. He's like, well, that's a lot more than a BB light, and but he knows I'm not going to ask for that unless I, it's the right thing. But that takes time, and the kind of not having that oppositional approach to production, um, production and DPs are. It's an important relationship that um, is really unfortunate when there's something adversarial going on, and it's usually because people think that that's how it's supposed to be. But that's not when it works its best. It works best when there's honesty and trust. Yeah, I, I, my God. And that, again, I think those are those lessons that you learn with age. The, you know, that as you grow and have experience and the, you, the conviction of what matters and how, yeah, it's the right thing for all of these reasons that you're listing out and that it is something that not only supports the artistry, but it supports the, you know, it, it supports the budget here. This is a more effective way of getting to the end. So, yeah, you know, it, it's, there's also the versus commercials. They're not like, they've got condors in the budget. They've got specialty gear in the budget. They're not trying to save every penny and right. come out way below. It's like, we're here to make a show. Let's make a show. And you're not, as long as you're not asking for anything unreasonable, 
it, it's there's usually some version of it you can get. Um, it's when you know a lot of commercials they're just trying to find a way to do it without the right tools and um, you know there's some great producers that and commercials that really um, are committed to doing it right and and not necessarily spending a ton more money but doing it right and then there's others where it's uh, not <laughs> well to touch on something that we were talking about before and I think it was um, and you mentioned doing commercial work and like the heart aligning with art and kind of doing things for the right reasons, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I just want to make it clear that in my mind, I don't see anything wrong with that. Everybody deserves to send their kids to college, does you know, mm-hmm. earn a paycheck. I think the thing that happens is how you approach it. Cynicism is something that's in your heart, not in the work itself. Yeah. And it's what you're trying to get out of that and what you're bringing to it that really matters in the end. That's, I can satire cynical sometimes and i so cynical art doesn't bother me but it shouldn't be made with cynicism you know even a commercial shouldn't be made with cynicism if possible we all have a pretty good job in this business if you're working and i'm really thankful to have it and it's uh i think it's really unfortunate when people get super jaded or frustrated um and often it's you know, if, if commercials were all I did, I think I would I would have issues with that. But I've been really fortunate to do documentaries where I can be really passionate and hands on and and try to do something useful for the world. And then um, narrative is is the first love. It's why I got into movies because I yeah. I like movies and I like TV and and I like making it. And then commercials are a great way to like have a life you know i can shoot for a week and make most of what i need for the month and and then go see my kids and my crew's happy because they're getting their full rate and not not whining about a producer that's you know not paying anything yeah. and which is 100 percent fair because i've done the same thing a million times and it's it's everyone's happy uh with when it's a good commercial because you just go, you do a simple day and, and you do your work and you go home um, and you go to the next thing. And most of my time as a camera assistant, I did commercials because I didn't want to disappear for months and months. And I didn't, uh, I wanted to do new things every day. I, one day I'm on a green screen stage. The other day I'm in a arm car going a hundred around a track and one, you know, whatever it is, like every day is different and create all these new skills and new friends. And, and especially in Los Angeles, which is where most of my experiences is like the people you end up with can be from any walk of life. And it's on the crew level, uh, above the line is, is a world that I, I can't comment on because it, it always scares me, but the below the line, it's a real meritocracy in a lot of ways in a way that you don't have to have a high school education to be one of the best people in the business. Yeah. And the kid that went to Harvard might be getting you a coffee. It doesn't mean it doesn't go the other way, but it's like, it's about what can you do? Are you fun to be around? And, um, you know, how, how well, how well do you know the job? And that's, that is, while we get jaded and it's frustrating sometimes there's 
almost nowhere in America where I think that's really the case in the same way. I, it's it's pretty unique. It's very, very unique. And um, I, I think that that comes through in meeting you today. I, I remember I was a camera assistant. One of the last things I could focus on was a movie where I was the B camera focus puller. It was a little movie in LA. It was tier one, but Larry Sher was shooting it and Zach Braff was directing called uh, Wish, Wish I Were Here. And I was the B camera and it was like night on a, one of those uh, lifeguard things by the Santa Monica Pier. Sure. Towers. And we had just moved out there and rolling camera and this teary eyed scene where like Kate Hudson's crying and, and, and I were rolling and I noticed the voltage start to flash. And I'm like, it's a long scene. And I look over and I realize the, the battery got moved, but not plugged back in. I had failed. And I, just watched, you know, I'm pulling forward. It's like wide open anamorphic. And I'm just like, uh, I can't really think about this. I hope this doesn't die. And she finishes her last line and she goes to the, the railing, turns away. And the camera goes. <laughs> and I just like, and I, I just know Larry's looking at me and I look at, cause he's operating B camera. And I look up and he's just like, <laughs> but you know, it, <laughs> shaking his head you know but i he you know he knew i felt horrible and it wasn't like a regular thing so it was it was fine he didn't need to bring it up because i knew it was stupid but um yeah i I tend to check batteries ever since then pretty carefully thank you scarring scarring mine is the uh clicking record um, I had an hour-long conversation with uh, Peter. I can't Shisinski. even talk about the subject because it brings back several very specific <laughs> horrible memories from long yeah. ago. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's the worst. The double tap is the worst <laughs> thing of all time. Um, oh, man. <laughs> one of the, um, uh, yeah, one of my, one of my, uh, one of the interviews that I, was so happy that I met, that I got, I was talking to Cronenberg's DP and I had, and we just had this incredible oh, wow. conversation. Shushitsky? Yeah. Wow. yeah. So this is, he's like one of the most underrated DPs of all time. Yep. And um, like every commercial five years ago is trying to look like return of the Jedi in the lightsaber scene. And it was one of those things that we ended up talking about Cosmopolis the whole time, just because mm-hmm. it was, relatively recent but there were so many little things to dive into with the look of that film on it and it was such a unique movie that at the end of it talking to this guy for an hour completely forgot to ask any star wars stuff completely it's a and i forgot to record it and it only exists in my head that's the only place uh, that that, that is. That, you know <laughs> the thing is he's talked about star wars a thousand times i'm sure he was relieved not to but the <laughs> but yeah that's it's sad that uh when things like that happen because it's you know it, it all these are super valuable you know I'll, I'll listen to this sort of thing when i'm like cleaning the garage or waxing skis or like riding my bike or, or whatever like yeah walking the kids 
back from school on the way to go pick them up, you know, wherever I can. And it's, it's amazing the access where I used to have to visit sets and really get into it. Like just listen to pick up just a little piece every time um, from someone like that is, it's a, it's a real benefit. Oh, oh, absolutely. The access to information you can get on your own just through YouTube and podcasts. You can, you can compile film school on your own, you know, before you're out of middle school at this point. So yeah, it's pretty incredible. It, it just raises the level up, um, you know, and, you know, it's just important to remember that there are other parts of it besides, um, besides just the, the tools and the, what you're doing and, and, and even the, the filmmaking part, the, the, Minimum 40% of my job, probably more, is management and politics. <laughs> and like to me, I, I'm at peace with it because I look at it as like that's the cost of doing the part I like. And so yeah, just like anything, it's you just do what you have to do to get to the part you enjoy. But it's um yeah, learning the game. That's one of the things that you can come out from outside the studio system not work up as assistant and there's a lot of amazing examples of that however i think it's important to be really aware and focused on learning how the pieces work together and how um the kind of political and management game is played in order to not get steamrolled because when you move up a level to a bigger style production you it's just kind of exponential. I remember showing up on the first day of a show and there was, there were five EPs, two creators and a showrunner, and they were not all on the same page. And, and that is a really delicate thing to make everyone feel who's worked really hard to get there, feel like they're listened to and honored, but also you have to make one film or one show. And so the the power dynamics may not be where you think they are. And it's very easy to get in a situation where you end up getting replaced if you're if you're not reading those um, correctly. And it's uh, yeah, that's one of those things that like some shows I learned a ton about photography and some I learned a lot about politics and occasionally it's both. What are the better shoots for you to work on? Um, drunk history is the best. I mean, it's because like, it's like the freedom is just unparalleled. Uh, I, I like the creators for the EPs for the directors. So mm-hmm. if they're happy, if I can listen to them and find what they need, I can do whatever I want after that. And, you know, I'm in line with the line producer. And then the crew was great. They're all good people. And there was a lot of days where, you know, that was my first TV show. And it was like, there were a lot of days where I'm walking by trucks and just take a second to be like, this is where I wanted to be. Like there's, there's 26 trailers in the base camp and there's 10 trucks leading up to set. And, you know, this is all so that I can do here so that I can be part of this. And I get to be part of this history of Hollywood, of storytelling and, and 
and all these amazing people around me trying to do something cool with me, you know, for these other guys that, that want to do something really interesting and, and have conviction about trying to do it well. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I'll ever have that sort of freedom. And, uh, there are restrictions within that show, which what things we had to do, uh, the amount of room and budget and time we had, we were doing eight to 10 pages a day. The first year I did it, we were doing 12 to 13. The second year I did it. Mm. Um, and we were in the production meeting four days from principal photography <laughs> when COVID shut us down. After five weeks of scouting, prepping, all the drunk part had already been shot and edited and, and turned into scripts. Like we were ready to go. And there, every time I see one of those stories, like on Facebook, like some fact you never knew, I'm like, I knew that we were going to do that. <laughs> uh, uh, it's like this this broken heart that's still there. And they're all just like all the scriptures just sitting there ready to go. It's, it's a tragedy. So, uh, but um, in terms of just freedom, creative freedom and, and enjoyment, that was, uh, that's going to be hard to match. Uh, in terms of documentaries, um, I do documentaries for a lot of different reasons. This one was because Arnold's so interesting. Yeah. Um, man, Leslie, I worked with for years and she's great. So like, just, I knew we'd do something cool. Um, usually most of the docs I do are about trying to raise awareness for something or address a problem. And it's, it's the way that I can contribute to the world and, um, and uh, kind of policy level. And uh, even though I may have only a minor impact it, or no impact, it's worth it lets me try and, and I really appreciate that. Um, so I, they're kind of two different worlds. So I hate to say one is better than the other. Sure. Cause I feel like if it, if I didn't have one of those, there'd be a, like a hole in me creatively and, and um, fulfillment wise, but you know, we'll see what next year brings. Like all of a sudden this year I was doing commercials again. I did, did like two commercials last year and then I was on a run this winter. <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to come so unpredictable. So strong uh, when this, yeah, and now I, and now I do, uh, now I mow the lawn. So I got that going for me. <laughs> well, just, it's amazing that there's one, episode let alone one season let alone multiple seasons of drunk history the fact that you had all those kids coming to get that that's not just a project that existed as a sketch somewhere that literally the idea mm -hmm. just the conceit of that show is so bonkers it's so we're so lucky to live in a world where that existed as a thing it's just and that you got i am a huge right? fan i'm a huge fan of the impossible movie the movie that shouldn't exist yeah. Yeah, like Jojo sure. Rabbit is a great example of like yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. this this should not be allowed in any way and it's fantastic. Like it like and the fact that the director is playing Hitler is just like none of it should be allowed. But it it works and it's it's one of the best I, I think that was my favorite movie that year. And it's then incredible. um you know what are, we were my wife and I were watching, uh, Ted was on Netflix. So we watched that, sure. that, uh, Mark Wahlberg and the yeah. bear. Yeah, yeah. We just said, what? This is funny, but why are we watching this? I'm like, it's an impossible movie. There you go. Like 
you got to give credit for like things that shouldn't exist, should have been stopped eight times and came out and are just like a breath of fresh air and something special. Like it doesn't have to be perfect. Edgar Wright's a great example of this. Like some of his movies are fantastic. Some of them miss, but they're always trying to be something different. And I always watch them because I, I huge amount of respect for anyone trying to do like Scott Pilgrim Pilgrim's fantastic. And, and it shouldn't be like, uh, I, I love stuff like not, that. And drunk history is absolutely in that vein. Absolutely. And in, in that, that like Scott Pilgrim is not something that I react to normally. Those types of movies are not meant for me, but my God, that thing just no up, up and down works. There's not an element of that movie that feels out of place as if you like there. good filmmaking, you like that movie. Yeah, probably. Can't <laughs> <laughs> yeah. speak for everyone, but um, yeah, I, I drunk history was definitely that thing. And those guys, they'll if you talk to them, they'll they'll tell you like they didn't know what they were doing during the first season. They were making it up as they went. No one quite knew what that what it meant. And I give a lot of credit to them and to Blake that the first DP and Sean Kim, who also shot one of the episodes, I think the start and really trying to say like, not, this is not just comedy, put the light here. Let's do something really cool and like really go for it with all this stuff. And um, it's just so much more fun to me is it like aspire to like, just absolutely make it a, an epic film than to, oh, you know, comedy, you did a thing. Now, it doesn't mean we don't wrap it around a little more, but it doesn't you don't have to lose contrast like that. Yeah. You know, you, you do the kill, the fill on the key side and keep the negative fill in close and everyone can see the comedy, but it doesn't have to feel like you're, you know, in a mugshot. Well, comedy is often um, not appreciated for the skill that it takes to execute well, I think drama, yeah. in my estimation, it it's not it's not harder or easier necessarily to pull off, but there is to pull off a good comedy is something that it's that's alchemy. You know, you can tell a good story, but to get a good story that has laughs in it, that's something that's next to impossible to pull off. So it's really hard to uh, make something look great and provide the kind of space for the performers. Yeah that comedy needs like i can't get in the way of funny right and sometimes that means that i'm not the right person for the job because uh if you need to see everyone at once with four cameras and you can't have shadows it doesn't mean you may have a fantastic show but it's not something i want to do sure but you know, um, like going back to Larry Shearer, one thing I saw him do on that movie, but he had done, I think my favorite version was on The Hangover, where The Hangover is hilarious, but it is a great looking movie. If you watch that movie without the sound, it's beautiful. And there's contrast and richness and depth to the color. And it's like, if that movie can be that funny and look that good, then whatever your excuses are, are excuses. You know, it's where Woody Allen and Gordon Willis, yeah. more examples there. There's a long tradition of people just not buying into 
comedy lighting. Um, and you, you mentioned Young Frankenstein earlier, and Young Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. I mean, that movie is that looks incredible. There's there's no way around it. I again, if you know, you talk about lo- losing the sound and what movie are are you watching, you know, you look at that, and if you have a even basic, most ancillary understanding of those old universal monster films. And you see what they were doing with the film. That's just the look of that thing. I mean, they had a lot of the original (laughs) sets, a lot of those towers and things that's from the original Frankenstein. So they, yeah, it was, uh, um, I I don't know. It, It just, it doesn't, as long as you don't get in the way of connecting with the characters, like, it can look as good as it can look. But what I think is the careful line is like, when are you getting in the way? Yeah. Um, both of, you know, one thing, you know, Arnold's an example of like when he's on set, he's ready to work and you better be ready to work. You know, I never saw him be rude to a crew member. He was nothing but nice and gracious to anywhere, any, everyone that I saw, but he was, he was not waiting around. Like you were ready. So sometimes, yeah, a slight diffusion more would be perfect on this actor or that actor. And, you know, if it's not a real problem, don't make it about you. You know, it's uh, uh, because it, it, we're, you want to give the actors and the director as much time as possible because um that part's so hard and it's so kind of unquantifiable that, that they need the space and they also need to feel like, like there's not a pressure around them. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're professionals. A lot of them can do it with the dolly coming right to their face and that they know how to play in that world. But if you don't need something in the way, don't put something in the way, like do it clean. You know, I, my crew is really good, like clean, make it look nice. Um, you know, sometimes it's a C stand for us, but when we can keep it, keep it back and give them the room they want to go wherever they want. And I don't want to be the guy that's saying, no, you can't go over there. I'd rather do bigger lights outside the windows and wrap it around a little bit. And yeah, you can go over there. Yeah. Oh, you know, give me two minutes. If you want to go to the other side of the room, give me a second, but all this is free. Have fun. And you know, let me know if it needs to change and I'll figure it out. Cause, and that comes from documentary of like, I can't tell Arnold where to go in his kitchen. You know, it's like, he's going to go where he's going to go. So where can I be that I can capture what he's doing and it still look good in the natural light. Absolutely. And that's the, I think that's what allows a film like this to have the power that it does because you're giving him the room to be himself and to show, I mean, there's uh, it, once you enter a camera and a director and anybody into the room, of course that changes the room, mm-hmm. but it's probably as close as we could get in that. And you just need to yeah. remove barriers between them and the camera as much as possible to make that. And I guess a as intimate an experience as possible. And that's what I got out of this. And so I think it's why I reacted so positively to it. It, it, uh, I'm glad you liked it, and because it was, uh, yeah, it was two years, and it's a lot of hard work. Um, but like I said, I always have fun, so it was uh, it was a pretty amazing experience and um, view into a number of worlds. Like he's he's just surrounded by all these really in, 
interesting, smart people. Um, and he, he seeks to be surrounded by, you know, people at their apex. So, so you, you learn a little bit every time, you know, where being a documentary person and, and another facets, but really documentary, you just drop into a world that's like, no one gets to go in. Like we've, we've been in Bill Gates office and Zuckerberg's office and, 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 uh, you know, a hut in India and all sorts of places in between. And there's a lot of, um, there's a, you learn these universal connecting truths about people in all walks of life and all parts of the world, which I find real, really reassuring. And, and, um, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it helps keep me an optimist. Um, and that's a, that's a real gift that documentary has given me. And this was, this was another one of those cases where you're like, no one gets to be in these rooms it's a very small group of people. And so I need to soak up partly for the film, but partly for my understanding of humanity. Like who are these people that swim in these circles and, Mm. and what is, how does that affect the world? It's actually really interesting to think about it from that sort of 40,000 foot lens while you're so close to it, to look at who, what does this mean to society? What does this mean to culture? And to have that moment to peer inside it in such a, intimate way that's i mean there's the version that we see but then there's the version that's actually in your mind's eye and your memory that's a wholly different experience than what could ever be projected on a screen and that's gotta gotta be something pretty pretty special yeah i'm i'm very thankful for the the kind of views into humanity that i've gotten at this job because it's one time i flew to london and was in a suburb of London an hour later scouting for this thing that had a, had a, someone was using a tool, which I can't be specific about for um, visual, he was visually impaired. Okay. And so we were in his apartment talking about how he uses it and trying to decide how to shoot it. And I just thought, how many years, if I moved to London, how many years would it take me to get into that apartment? Hmm. Like, what are the odds that I would ever end up in Camden in this tiny apartment um, with someone that's living their own life in a very different way than I do? And um, and what does that tell me about the world that I wouldn't have seen? Um, it's 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 a real gift, and you know, narrative films you'll end up in. I've been to parts of LA that the UPS drivers have never been, you know, it's like, like I see a city that people have lived there their whole life. I've never seen good and bad. Sure. And, um, and most of the people I work with have had similar experiences. And um, it's, it's one of the things where then we can take that into our storytelling and help tell a universal story that connects people through the work. And um I guess I guess that's kind of the aspiration of art in any sense. So, well, it's the the purpose of it, isn't it? Yeah. In the end of the yeah. day, it's it's these the that whole idea of the you know of a thousand faces, the you know that we keep telling these stories over and over yeah. again, trying to find these universal yeah. truths, these things that we know deep in our DNA that we just keep retelling, and there, there's meaning behind them. We just have to 
we have to code it in these ways so that we're willing to take it in. Because if we say things as they are, we're not willing to accept them. But if we remove ourselves, you know, five feet from it and create distance from truth, then we're able to take it mm-hmm. in through storytelling. It's very, well, it's like a Surat, you know, we're, we all have our little story we think is so special and it's all these little dots and you step yep. back and all of a sudden, Oh, this is one painting. And it's simpler than that. And that's, Absolutely. I know some people that freaks out and some people feel. I, that keeps find, me peace. Um, yeah, I, exactly. I find peace in that. Yeah. I, I appreciate I it. It makes me feel I don't more need connected. to be on my own and too special. <laughs> that wouldn't make me happy. I, I if, if, anything I've learned from the last three years, it's that, you know, three and a half years, I have always been somebody who I thought that I really appreciated alone time, but I didn't need it quite as much as I thought I did. No, no, so, I need a hobby. <laughs> well, I, I, I got those going. That's about it right now. Yeah. So oh, I, there you go. So that and kids. Um, good. But I'm hearing kids that's um, it. Yeah. walk into the house. So this is going to, get raucous in a second no no no. Um, I, I, same thing just so, happened here we're on the same time zone so but yeah. thank you so much for taking way too much of your time uh, today it's to been a time. pleasure and and you know um i always like talking about life and cinematography and where they occasionally interact <laughs> i appreciate that man it's been a real right. pleasure to meet you so thank you so much very Larry. nice to meet you looking right. forward to seeing how it turns out Cheers. Right, take care man bye-bye Time enough to figure you out Time enough to write this down Wish me luck, give me hope
boys crack.